I go back to you know Aldo Leopold. He often said there's there's two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm, and one is that you, you know, think your food comes from the grocery store, and that you think your uh, energy or heat comes from the furnace. And I would add a third one to that: the danger of sort of not owning your water savings under something like AquaShares is that you start thinking your water comes from that pipe in the wall. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Bernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Kate Meese, Director of the Local Government Commission. Our regular host, Mike Hancocks, is taking a well-deserved vacation this week. Our topic this week is innovative solutions for resilient water management. But before I get to this week's topic, I want to share some information about our 16th annual New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, which is coming up early 2018. The conference will be in San Francisco, February 1st through 3rd. And this year, we're taking a little bit of a different approach. We're focusing on eight topical tracks to give participants a chance to go deeper in their topic of interest and develop stronger partnerships with peers working on similar program areas. The tracks will include strengthening rural communities, creating sustainable water systems, addressing our changing climate, improving transportation accessibility and connectivity, designing healthy communities, building fair and affordable housing, planning and designing smart growth communities, and inclusive prosperity of people and place. So it's gonna be a great program. Make sure to save the date on your calendars and registration will open in October. So in the meantime, you can follow up with the conference and receive updates at newpartners.org. Okay, let's jump in. Our guest today is Jamie Workman. Jamie creates conservation markets for water and marine life. He's the co-founder of AquaShares. He wrote the award-winning Heart of Dryness, how the last Bushman can help us endure the coming age of permanent drought and the forthcoming a new book, Sea Change, The Quiet Revolution Transforming Life Offshore and On. An investigative journalist, he became a White House appointee to U.S. Interior Secretary Bruce Babbitt, later joining the World Commission on Dams under Nelson Mandela. He currently writes for Environmental Defense Fund, edits the International Water Association's market magazine, The Source, and is founder, like I said, of AquaShares, the world's first online market that lets families and firms trade and monetize water savings. So a man of many talents. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks, Kate. So I want to start off by asking you about the book you wrote. So how did you end up deciding to pursue and learn more about the Bushmen and, and how they have been able to respond to drought and, and what motivated you to travel to Africa to, to do so? 
I'd like to say it was all a big master plan, but of course these things never go the way you, you, you do start out. But I, I uh, the short answer is I broke down in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, and I was uh, at the time writing about uh, the, the causes and consequences of water scarcity. I had a two-year fellowship with the Institute of Current World Affairs, and Southern Africa and the Middle East uh, are the two hotspots, literally and figuratively, where, where water wasn't just an economic water scarcity, but a physical water scarcity. And for more than a decade, everyone had been saying, this is going to lead to water wars. And so I said, you know, as a correspondent, I want to figure out what's going on. And it took me down to Southern Africa, and I learned about a, a siege, basically, where the government of Botswana, which is a wonderful democracy in, in many ways, uh, an exceptional um, leader in, in Africa, but had decided, like America, that it wanted to put its indigenous people on a, a reservation so that it could make room for uh, mining, and cattle ranching, and uh, tourism. And these Bushmen didn't want to go, and they decided to stay, and I was like, oh, I'm going to go rescue them. And of course, it didn't work out, as I said, I broke down. And that's when I said, how have these guys managed out here for 30,000 years? Uh, what can we learn about them? Not taking pity on them, but, you know, adapting our systems to how they have uh, thrived out here you know, with laughter and, and resilience in the middle of the desert. Uh, but that's, that's what brought me into this. Um. Well, sounds like it was a very fortuitous discovery out there and, and certainly a humbling experience. So what, what did you find? What were, the, what were the Bushmen doing that ended up ultimately really creating a pivot in, in your career? It's interesting. They, they've been doing what every traditional society has done uh, up until you know the industrial age, which was that they you know specialize. They get good at finding resources, whether it's for fuel or food or in this case water, in some case all of the above, and then they bring them back to the camp. And what they didn't use themselves, they would uh, for their family, they would exchange with others. So it's very Adam Smith, very sort of you know we would call. Uh, truck barter exchange um, capitalism. And that was a big shock to me because I had this romanticized idea of the Bushmen as as being primitive Marxists from some of the stuff I'd read, that they're all just like sharing equally. And, and, and they are just exactly like you and I in terms of their self-interest, in terms of you know, the, the, the vices and virtues. Um, but they had worked out a system there uh, as has I've discovered since almost every traditional society to uh, save and trade their resources, and this led to efficiency, and this led to you know adapting to drought to um, where there wasn't any standing water in the desert, and, and that, that's what enabled them to thrive, and that's what I've been trying to you know, take away and, and, and sort of adapt to to our world. So before I get into some questions around how you ended up bringing that idea home and, and starting to adopt it to our world, what motivated you to, to come back and create programming based on what you saw versus just coming back and telling their story as a journalist? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because most people um, in America, even if they're living in California, even if they're living in a, a thirsty area, don't have any acute sense. We've been insulated from the source of our sustenance, from the source of our food, of our, our water. We've had this entire system that's providing it for us, and that works really, really well, uh, with the exceptions of energy and water in particular, where you have these 
natural monopolies um, that uh, in the past their whole business model was based on selling as much energy and selling as much water as possible and in many ways giving it away for free. Um, that was the, the ideal of getting people to settle uh, in the West, especially in California. Um, and we've recognized in recent years that that business model is broke. Uh, uh, there, there are limits to how much water, how much carbon you can put up uh, in the air, but there it hasn't been any system for addressing that. And so, you know, after beating my head as a journalist for many years and writing a book, um, people still saying, well, okay, that's fine, but what do we do about that? And there wasn't any real system to address that. There were plenty of, you know, water-saving tips, but again, those those didn't make sense either to the utility or to a lot of the, uh, the, the consumers, the families and firms that use water. Um, and so that's that was both a crisis to me and an opportunity. So why don't we get into exactly what AquaShare is and, and how you've taken this approach to create a program that can replicate what you saw in the in the desert there with the Bushmen and take that to to the United States. Sure. Um, well, I mean, it's you think of the tragedy of the commons. A lot of problems, uh, especially environmental uh, problems, can be solved. Uh, by regulation uh, alone. You, you say, okay, that, that factory over there is pouring its waste, its uh, sewage, its pollution into the air, into the, into the water. Uh, we got to just put a cap on that and block that. But what do you do, you know, with, with uh, 50,000 people who are all competing with each other for the same resource? And that's the, that's the tragedy of the commons that, that makes all, you know, to me, conservation issues interesting. The approach of AquaShares is to give people a sense that they're not just renting access to as much water as they want, as cheap as they want, but they have an ownership stake, that they're stewards of that water that they save and that they can profit from saving uh, water, not just feel good about it. Um, if it was enough you know, to say, oh, we should just use less water, then we wouldn't have a, a water crisis. But because there's no pricing, because there's no sense of this water is mine, um, and appealing to innate human self-interest, uh, there wasn't a real driver uh, for any race to conserve. And that's what we're creating with, with AquaShares. Basically, we, we work with a utility or a district to say, here's how much people have been using, um, here's how much you can collect to provide that service, but here's a way, based on their historic use, if they use less, to give them a credit, a thousand-gallon uh, AquaShare, which they can then you know, donate, they can trade it, they can barter it, they can save it, they can sell it to uh, the utility, to governments, to foundations, or to businesses that want to either offset their water use or drive down conservation. So it introduces a, a new missing tool to the equation um, that hadn't existed before. Uh, before you only had sort of rationing, which was unfair and, and inequitable. You had regulations, uh, which were very clumsy, clumsy and cumbersome, and often backfired. You had restrictions uh, where you say, okay, you can't water your lawn on Tuesdays and Fridays. Uh, and those were impossible to enforce, and actually, in some cases where people tried to enforce them, they, they cost more than they were worth. And so we're trying to say, here's a carrot. Um, if you use less, you not just lower your water bill, uh, but you get credits. And the utility can say, great, we're finally on the same side as our customers, um, and we have a way now to decide how much water we can all save together and 
introducing that price signal for the first time. So what types of measures are people taking to reduce their water use? Well, some, some of it's as simple as finding a leak. Um, and it seems obvious, but uh, it turns out one of the biggest water users in every city um, is the city itself. Uh, there, there's lots of water loss, in some cases 10, 20, 30 percent. And while, you know, for more than a decade or, or more, utilities have been pointing the finger at families and firms saying, you should save water, you should save water. The utilities themselves had real no incentive to spend, you know, $100,000 to systematically find and fix uh, their leaks, their, manage their, their water pressure um, and address that because it might only save a, a, a few thousand dollars worth of water. But now that they can get rewarded as well for saving water, they're finding incentives to do so. And so have the customers. Um, some of them said, oh, I had been thinking about taking up my lawn before and converting to zero escaping, but, you know, that would have cost me uh, $5,000 to save, what, $200 worth of water? That just didn't make sense to them. But over the long term, when they make these structural changes that we all sort of know about at the back of our heads, swapping out a, a shower head, a, a, a a low flush toilet, a you know, timed sprinklers uh, so that it's not going off in the middle of the day. All these things start to make a lot more sense when people say, ah, that water I save is mine. I can sell it. I can do what I want with it. And it's not just going to go to feed new developments um, sprawl by somebody else. Um, that was that was the big challenge before. You save water, your neighbor says, thanks, I'm going to put it in a swimming pool. So you, you talked about the, the program working with various partners, whether that's a, a foundation, a water agency, a, a city, there are a number of ways that this could roll out. Do you have partners um, from those sectors or others that have agreed to purchase the shares? And what is the homeowner seeing in terms of incentives? Is it a deal back on their um, utility bill or are these incentives that they can use in the community? Right. No, right now we're, we're going with the cash uh, is king kind of offer, and we're working uh, with a couple pilots, one in, in Sonoma County with the Valley of the Moon Water District, a really innovative leader there, Dan Mulrath, uh, has decided to explore this in conjunction with rolling out smart meters. Um, and he's, you know, they put customers uh, ahead of everything and, and want to be innovative and, and thought leaders. And so he says, well, if we install, you know, these two or three hundred uh, smart meters on a trial basis. We want to make sure that it's not just us who are benefiting. And so their customers, you know, for the first time, were able to see, ah, I had a leak I didn't know I had, uh, and now I can fix that. And if I do decide to fix that, um, I can get uh, rewarded for doing so. And some of the, the companies uh, have expressed interest as well. Uh, we're also talking with some vineyards. We're talking with uh, uh, different different foundations uh, that have said, okay, we often negotiate with one or two farmers to you know, leave more uh, irrigation water in the stream to benefit salmon or, or, or other endangered species. Um, but uh, this gives us a tool to reward you know, tens of thousands of people at once, um, sort of crowdsourcing water conservation uh, in, a, in a way that we, we were never able to do before. And, and that's perked up the interest of um, the state you know, California Water Resource Control Board, uh, the California Water Foundation, which was the sponsor of this pilot uh, in Valley of the Moon in Sonoma. Um, and because they're starting to see, hey, this is, we can, you know, old saying, catch more flies with uh, with honey than with vinegar. 
Um, and rations and restrictions will probably always you know, be a backstop uh, in emergency situations, but this lets them sort of get out ahead of the game and, and plan years in advance and be able to phase in or phase out uh, a water savings aquashares program uh, as, it, as it meets their needs. And we've learned a lot from the utility, uh, Valley of the Moon in particular, on that front. Um, another application has been with, uh, as I said, with, with vineyards, uh, with um, groundwater users, because again, that's a, another classic tragedy of the commons where people didn't have uh, uh, an incentive to pump less water, because if they didn't pump it, someone else would. Uh, but if, if they adopt a groundwater focus with aquashares, uh, there's a way for them to say, okay, I, I get a secure share, and with the California Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, this lets them get out ahead of, of, of any you know, sanctions or restrictions that may come in the future. Well, it sounds like there's been a pretty positive reception to this approach from at least the water agencies in the, the, at the state and the local level. How many people have signed on to participate in the pilot, and what do you see as being the the plan to scale this out? I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering when they might be eligible for something like the training program. That's that's great to hear, and that's our our hope and expectation. We uh, offered this to, there was 300 people that uh, signed up for, um, or or who got smart meters, basically smart meters, I call them that, advanced meters give give readings every hour uh, on a 24-hour basis so that there's more understanding of who's using how much water when. Uh, and, and being able to provide a user portal to the customers uh, makes this information important to uh, the families and firms, the homeowners. Um, of those 300, we were expecting maybe, you know, 3 or 4% to, to take it up, but we've gotten about a sixth, so about 50, a little more than 50 people have signed up. Um, and that was really, really encouraging, that kind of response. It's still a relatively small you know, statistical sample, uh, but what we're doing is we're going to be able to use that as against a, a control group and be able to show the utility uh, what what the gains have been in comparison to those without smart meters, those without aqua shares, and how the combination can add, you know, com- combine motivation with information. Um, in the past, a lot of, you know, and PG&E is a classic example of this, Advanced meters were installed, you know, without the permission, without the, uh, you know, any real obvious benefit to the end user, um, and that's something that water utilities are very sensitive about and, and cautious to. Um, but the good news is that I think some of the, the the biggest you know utilities in California are moving towards uh, advanced meters, um, and some that are putting meters on for the first time. I think it's Sacramento and, and Fresno and Modesto that had never metered their water before, they now have this chance to say, we can really engage with our customers, not just to go from, say, 500 gallons a day to 300 gallons a day, but down to, you know, 100, maybe 75 gallons a day, uh, and, and offer a rewards program for doing so. So I'm wondering, with, with all the rich experience you've had and the, the different hats you've worn, what does success look like at the end of the day for, for this program and and for water resilience in general, in your mind? Yeah, it's a crazy business model for me, but um, success is when we're, we go out of business. Uh, there's no, no need for AquaShares anymore uh, because everyone is you know, autonomous. They're using the, the bare minimum of water. There's nothing left to trade. There's no more water that can go towards a, a higher value use. Now, 
I'm, I'm not too worried about that happening in the next three or four years. Um, but that's that's the goal I think any business should play is to identify a problem, a crisis that's also an opportunity, um, move in and, and develop and provide you know a way to, to bridge that uh, gap of, of lacking information, of lacking incentives, um, and then really be able to, to, to drive that and scale it up. Um, I, I can envision, you know, within a watershed that, uh, like, like in Sonoma, there's about seven or eight different utilities that are all sharing water on the Russian River. Valley of the Moon is the first pioneer there. Uh, but I could envision trading, you know, both not just within a water utility, but between them to, to again, drive uh, conservation. Because right now, water systems are very balkanized. There's about 50... 53,000 of them around the country, um, and you know, only I think about a fifth of those are, are, are private uh, companies. But this this uh, allows people to start thinking about water in a very different way, um, thinking about it in the way that a farmer thinks about uh, rain as something you know that's essential to their existence. That they can't just outsource to a you know, to strangers to uh, an institution. Um, but works now with that institution or within that institution to say, hey, here's here's what I want to do with with my water. Here's how I value it. I'm not going to sell it now. I'll sell it in you know during the next dry periods. My my credits that I've earned, um, and that's a that's a fundamental shift. Uh, but it's something that I, I go back to you know Aldo Leopold talking about. Um, he's, he often said there's there's you know, two spiritual uh, dangers in not owning a farm and. Uh, and one is that you, you know, think your food comes from the grocery store and that you think your uh, energy or heat comes from the furnace. And I would add a third one to that. The danger of sort of not owning your water savings under something like AquaShares is that you start thinking your water comes from that pipe in the wall, that hose, you know, attached. Um, you never think about, and apparently even most Californians uh, don't know where their water comes from. Um, and that's, that's a legacy where no one wanted people to think about where their water comes from. They wanted people to use as much uh, water as, as they felt the need to, but, uh, but now we're in a different era, of course, now. This five-year drought that taught us anything, it's that, okay, you know, it broke, but it's going to be around. Uh, we're, look, we're entering this age of permanent drought, as I, I had in my, my book subtitle, um, where we're never going to be this, this age of just abundance, more water than we'll know what to do with, and desalination is going to come to the rescue, um, we're recognizing that, you know, we cannot just live within limits. We can thrive within those limits. A surprising amount of flexibility and, and resilience uh, that we can we can develop once we have the lever in the right place. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking incentives are that lever. That's great. Well, unfortunately, we're at time, but I think that's a, a perfect note to end on, a, a, a call of, of hope and inspiration that we can thrive with a, a changing climate if we put all our creativity towards solutions like AquaShares. So can you let our listeners know where they can find more information about AquaShares and the other work you've done? Absolutely. Um, AquaShares uh, is just as it's spelled, AquaShares, one word, dot com is uh, the, the website where you can learn more about how you can own and trade the water you save. Um, uh, I can be reached at jworkman at AquaShares.com. Um, and uh, the, the book is you know, Heart of Dryness. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, another book I'm working on with a, with a colleague at Environmental Defense Fund, uh, as you mentioned, is called Sea Change, which is basically the same concept. And it's 
proven with fishermen that once they have a share of the fish in the sea, they have every incentive to be good stewards and rebuild fish stocks uh, until there is, again, that, that balance and that uh, resilience uh, for fishermen, just as there is and can be for water. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for your amazing work, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Hey, this is a great opportunity, and, and keep up the great work you guys do. And thank all of you for listening to us. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 